0: Rebecca's going to come up and read our scripture. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 12. If you don't own a Bible, um, you can use that red one around you. It should look just like this um, as your copy this morning. So thank you, Rebecca.
1: Starting at verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these." If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious, for the Gentile world eagerly seeks all of these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom sell your possessions, and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. Good morning. As we get started here, let's take just a moment to be silent with God and with the word that we just heard read here so that we can really hear the Spirit's voice speaking to us. So what I want you to do is you just even close your Bible right now. Don't look at your journal. Just close your Bible, your eyes, everything, and take a deep breath in. and Let it right back out. And in the silence, just come before God and let His Spirit draw near to your heart right now to speak. O Lord, in your light do we see light. Let the light of your presence and your love fill us and illuminate for us what is true and good and beautiful this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in case you missed last week, didn't have a chance to listen to it online yet, we are pausing our uh, walk through the book of Acts that we're doing through kind of the first half of 2022. We're pausing it for just a few weeks to uh, take a, a side road into a spiritual formation series for about five weeks. Um, we've done several spiritual formation series over the years. If you go onto our website, there's actually a whole resource page uh, that has, uh, that's about various spiritual practices that are just a part of the Christian life that help us grow in our knowledge of Jesus and our relationship with Jesus, helping us to walk in step with Jesus. So there's tons of resources on there. And we're starting a new one. Uh, We started a new one just this past Sunday uh, when Brandon opened things up for us on the subject of simplicity and generosity. You saw on the screen earlier, we sang a song called Simplicity. Only Miles McGuire could find a song for a worship series called Simplicity. So I was was really pleased to see that. Um, The message last week was a really good one. It was a fantastic beginning to this series that we're in. I encourage you to listen to it online or on the podcast if you didn't get a chance to do it yet because it takes a deep dive into the why behind this series. Why does this matter? It shouldn't take too much convincing for any of us to agree that we live overly full and overly fast-paced lives much of the time, maybe even most of the time. And in his book... The freedom of simplicity. This is one of the key resources that we're kind of holding out to you guys to say, hey, this is a great thing during the series. Richard Foster, the author, describes what a lot of us know from experience, but he puts some good words to it. The pace of the modern world accentuates our sense of being fractured and fragmented. We feel strained, hurried, breathless. The complexity of rushing to achieve and accumulate more and more threatens frequently to overwhelm us. It seems there is no escape from the rat race. What Foster's describing is our lack of simplicity. Our internal exhaustion is connected to our external turmoil in life, especially around the subject of money and possessions. And that's at the heart of what Brandon talked about last week. We looked at Jesus' teachings in Luke chapter 12, the the part of Luke 12 before what Rebecca just read, and then also in Luke 16, and we came face to face with one incontrovertible fact. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, mammon is this summary word in Scripture for money and possessions. But it's not just the stuff. It's not just the money. It's not just the things that we buy with the money. It's the spiritual power behind the money and behind the stuff. And that's why our internal fracturing is so connected to our outward actions. We have trouble living with simplicity on the outside, simplicity with our money, simplicity with our possessions, because we lack simplicity on the inside. Sort of like the rich young ruler Who talks to Jesus who wants to follow Jesus and he he tells Jesus that look I have kept all of God's commandments since I was a young boy but then he hears from Jesus that there's still one thing he needs to do and that is to sell all of his stuff and then come and follow him and sort of like that guy our hearts have a really hard time letting go of any number of things and for any number of reasons Last week, we got a full, high-octane dose of the why behind simplicity, why it is so important. And now today, and for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the how, how we grow in simplicity. And because our outward simplicity is rooted in and is really controlled by our inward simplicity, that is where we're going to start, with simplicity on the inside, it's something that Christians for centuries have referred to as simplicity of heart. Now, there is not one primary passage in the Bible where it teaches the idea of simplicity of heart or how to go about getting it. Rebecca read part of Luke chapter 12 for us a minute ago, and we're going to center on that today in just a few minutes. But we're going to jump around a lot, too, because Scripture talks about this idea of simplicity of heart in all sorts of places and in all sorts of ways. And so here's going to be our basic approach today. First, we're going to consider what simplicity of heart actually is. And second, we're going to consider how we find it, how it grows in us, how we actually apprehend it. And in the end, there are going to be a couple of invitations to us, invitations to take a step toward simplicity of heart. So that's where we're going to go today, quick roadmap. So, first of all, what is this simplicity of heart? Because this is a need that most of us, maybe all of us, have, we probably have some kind of sketch in mind already of what simplicity heart is. Probably our sketch has a lot more to do with the lack of simplicity. We tend to be much more familiar with that side of it. So, in that book, Freedom of Simplicity, Foster mentions how impacted he was by another spiritual formation classic, called A Testament of Devotion by a guy named Thomas Kelly. And there's so much good stuff in this book, I can't recommend it highly enough, but here's here's one quick sketch of of how Kelly describes simplicity of heart. He writes, We have hints that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. We've seen such lives, Integrated, unworried by the tangles of close decisions, unhurried, cheery, fresh, positive. These are not people of dallying idleness, nor of obviously mooning meditation. They are busy carrying their full load as well as we, but without any chafing of the shoulders with the burden, with quiet joy and springing step. Surrounding the trifles of their daily life is an aura of infinite peace and power and joy. Kelly talked about people living out of a divine center in their lives. And Foster explained a little bit more about what that divine center is for people who got squeamish and that sounded too new agey. He said, I hope you understand what I mean when I speak of living out of the center. I am, of course, referring to God, but I do not mean God in an abstract theological sense, nor even God in the sense of one who's to be feared and revered, nor do I mean God only in the sense of one to be loved and obeyed. For years, I loved God and sought to obey him, but he remained on the periphery of my life. But slowly, I came to see that God desired to be not on the outskirts, but at the heart of my experience. Gardening was no longer an experience outside of my relationship with God. I discovered God in the gardening. Swimming was no longer just good exercise. It became an opportunity for communion with God. God in Christ had become the center. In her book, Abundant Simplicity, I got so many books for you today, guys. (laughs) Abundant Simplicity, this is another one of our recommended resources going on with the series. Jan Johnson uh, emphasizes the intentionality and the single-mindedness that are are a part of simplicity of heart. She writes, The single-minded person does the next small thing that is needed in order to focus on God instead of giving in to the automatic responses of the past. To treasure God is to have a single, focused life. I don't know about you, but that thing about the automatic responses of the past That really spoke to me. I feel like too often I'm running on autopilot just giving responses that I've trained myself to give over the years. And that is not simplicity. In probably the most famous definition of simplicity that's been given, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, great name, he was a Danish philosopher and theologian, he wrote a little book, the title of which is his quote that's so famous. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. What these last two ideas, Jane Johnson and Kierkegaard, what those are especially good at, well, they, they are especially good at giving us a bridge into Scripture. Because while joy and peace are certainly evidence of a simplicity of heart that we're living with, they themselves aren't simplicity of heart. Joy and peace are not the same thing as simplicity. Instead, I think single-mindedness and this idea of willing one thing, they really start to hit the target more of the biblical vision of simplicity of heart. We start to see it first in what the Bible says simplicity is not, or at least what its opposites are. Now, Just fair warning here, I'm about to run through a whole bunch of different scriptures. They'll be on the screen, but what I encourage you to do is jot them down in your journal and you can go back to them and meditate on them a little bit later. James chapter 4 shows us that a lack of inward simplicity is double-mindedness. Here's what James writes. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Then he j- I will jump forward and he writes, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Psalm 119 contrasts simplicity with a divided heart. In verse 113, the psalm says, I hate the double-minded. You could also translate that half-hearted or those with divided loyalties. I hate the divided-hearted, but I love your law, talking to God. So, even though most English translations, probably yours, say double minded right there, it could just as easily be translated half hearted or divided loyalties, something split down the middle. What's interesting is that's the same root word from another Old Testament story, the story of Elijah defeating the prophets of Baal. And just before this, this amazing story uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah rebukes the nation of Israel for following after this false God. And th- this is what he says, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The same root word is in there, limping between two opinions, as in this dividedness of heart in Psalm 119. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3 describes a lack of simplicity in a different way. Paul writes, But mark this, have nothing to do with such people. So that is a long and honestly pretty convicting list of character flaws right there. Some of them are outward for everybody to see. Some of them are inward. But all of them come down to this. Such people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're out for their own desires. In other words, This is what you could call not simplicity of heart, but duplicity of heart. This is teaching us that the opposite of simplicity is not just complexity like we might often think about it. The opposite of simplicity is also duplicity. It's trying to live as though you can have more than one greatest love in your life. So double-mindedness, a divided heart, duplicity of heart. I don't think we're supposed to make fine distinctions between those things. We're not going to split hairs here. They are similar, similar language for overlapping ideas. We are people who are internally divided, like we've got multiple selves living inside us, all desiring different things. That's a good description of what it's like to be a person who's trying to serve both God and mammon at the same time. We may not be conscious of it, but that dual service to opposing masters is splitting and tearing us right down the middle. Or it's possible that, sort of like Kierkegaard talks about, somebody might be able to will one thing, but if that one thing isn't God, it's still going to split them down the middle. It's going to tear us apart inside. Richard Foster says, No desire can be fully satisfied when it is outside of God. And an individual becomes not merely double-minded, but thousand-minded at variance with himself. So that's a whole bunch about what simplicity of heart isn't. But what does the Bible say simplicity of heart actually is then? Well, starting from what we just saw, I think we might take a first look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul, in this section of his his book, is talking about all these spiritual credentials and the laurels that he used to rest on before he met Jesus, thinking previously that these were the things that commended him to God. God, here are my trophies. You know how great I am, so this must prove that I am one of your people. But now that Paul has encountered the resurrected Christ and he believes the gospel, this is what he says. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. It's a really strong word there. Rubbish, filth. That I may gain Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, meaning the fullness of eternal life. But here's the money verse. One thing I do, one thing, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. About as far as you can get from having a double mind or a divided heart here, Paul is almost fanatical about having this single blazing purpose in his life which is to know and become like Jesus. And he uses some athletic language in that passage there that it makes us think of another passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews pictures us running a race and running it so hard and so devotedly that we completely strip down so that there is not a single thing left in our life that is holding us back from crossing the finish line. And he certainly includes sin in that, but he also includes even the good things that just encumber us for the race. So like a marathoner, we're, we're keeping a mental eye locked on the goal, locked on that finish line that we can't even see yet, knowing and being with Jesus, to keep us focused throughout the race. And then... When that goal finally draws near, when we're in that last mile, the last half mile, the last quarter mile, rounding the last turn, our gaze sharpens even even further and we can actually see the finish line and we press hard to cross it. And at that finish line, waiting for us, is the one who ran a similar race before, with his eye fixed on the indescribable joy of knowing his father of receiving a kingdom, and of bringing us into that kingdom to be with Himself. That was the singular joy of Jesus that animated and illuminated and filled His life, that led Him to go to the cross on our behalf. Any attempt at simplicity of heart whose single-mindedness is not marked by joy is going to be missing the point. Now that might start to remind us of another verse, and this time in the Sermon on the Mount. This will be familiar to you. Blessed, or you could say happy, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. So we preachers often emphasize that the word blessed here is not an emotion, it's a state of being. We are blessed by God by being in Jesus. It's true. It's true. But we preachers can sometimes be a bit sober and overwrought sometimes. And so this same word, it literally does mean happy. It's okay to say that. And wouldn't it be cause for happiness in our lives to experience the kind of purity of heart that allows us to see God? Wouldn't that be a thing that gives you joy? Finally, for that fog of self-centeredness and the haze of our own desires and our focus on life, For that fog to lift, for it to become clear, and for us to see with clear eyes for the first time. This particular beatitude is the one that's behind Kierkegaard's quote, purity of heart is to will one thing. I think the pure in heart can see God so clearly because their vision is no longer cluttered with competing desires. They have a single will to know and become like Jesus. And that brings us into the language of desire. And the Psalms become really helpful for us here, like Psalm 37 Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. There are two layers of meaning in this verse. The first is this idea that when our deepest delight is in God himself and not in any other thing, even other good things, He will still fulfill those good, right desires. The desires that are really at the root of all the things that we want in life. But the second layer is this. When God is our deepest delight, He actually gives us our desires. He shapes us. He forms for us and fills us with desires that come from Him. So that in the end what we are freely desiring of our own will, our own accord, is what he himself desires. And when God is the one doing that forming and that filling, we can rest assured that those desires are not going to start competing with one another. They are all ordered underneath our single greatest desire to know and become like Jesus. Friends, that is simplicity of heart. Jesus teaches us, A similar thing about desires and simplicity in his kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. So here are two pictures of just, Matthew 13, you could just call what God's kingdom is like. And here are two pictures of what God's kingdom is like. But what's amazing here is that Jesus says the kingdom of God is not that thing over there that you should be seeking after. He, he doesn't only say that. Somehow, the kingdom of God is actually in our desire for God. Our sold out laser-focused, single-minded, wholehearted desire for God is itself evidence that the kingdom of God is within us. Again, simplicity of heart sets all of our desires under and aligns them with one great love for God himself. And that language of love brings us to the basic Old Testament foundation simplicity of heart. It's what's called the Shema. It's Israel's fundamental confession of faith in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Many, many years later, when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus riffed on this in Matthew 22. And he said, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, this is the first and greatest commandment. In other words, he's saying, live with a radical simplicity of heart. Love God above all else. That's simple. But then Jesus continues. He says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus put the priority on love of God in simplicity of heart. But that kind of love cannot help but overflow into a love of neighbor. The inward simplicity of a single great love for God, an all-consuming passion for Him, leads us to an outward simplicity where our life is organized in such a way that we are free to love others with abandon. Nothing is holding us back. We have no reason to hesitate. And so we've been dancing around it. But this finally brings us to the passage that Rebecca read for us earlier, Luke chapter 12, especially in verse 31. Don't keep striving for what you should eat and for what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and all these things will be provided for you. Maybe you're more familiar with how this is phrased in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Friends, these words right here, that verse, that is the foundation for the entire spiritual discipline of simplicity. It's simple enough to grasp what Jesus means by seek first the kingdom of God. We've been talking about it all through this message. But I also like how John Mark Comer, some of you know him, he's a pastor in Portland, I like how Comer puts it. He says to seek first the kingdom of God means that we invest the resources of our life into God and into what God is doing in the world. Or to put it another way, it's to live continually for God's presence and God's pleasure. I really like that. Continually living for God's presence is to aim for a constant experience of abiding in Christ like a branch that stays vitally continuously connected to the vine that is its source of life and there's this essential link between living for God's presence and living for his pleasure but it's a paradoxical link the paradoxical or the paradox of the kingdom of God is that our self-fulfillment is found in self-denial. I love how Comer puts it. He says, As we give all that we are, we receive all that He is. As we give all that we are, we receive all that He is. Friends, that is simplicity of heart. So, I've spent a lot of time painting this picture here of what simplicity of heart is because we need to catch a vision for it. We need to to have a, a picture of it in our minds that even if we're not living with it yet, it's something that we're moving toward. It's something attractive for us. But the goal of this series is not just to have an idea in our heads, but it's to live it out, right? It's to actually grow in this and walk in this. So how do we do that? Well, first, there's a catch. We cannot find it by looking for it. I'm sorry. That's the simple truth. It is hard to grow in seeking first the kingdom of God when we are consumed with evaluating how well we're seeking first the kingdom of God. Richard Foster gives us some pretty wise counsel here. He says, the more we work at being unconcerned about ourselves, the more conscious of ourselves we become. And so what are we to do? Nothing. Let the matter drop. It is one of those things in life that will never yield to frontal attack just like jesus tells us not to worry about our basic provisions what we're going to eat what we're going to wear we also shouldn't worry or obsess over finding and living with simplicity that defeats the whole purpose and getting into that spot is a pretty sure sign that we're not moving towards simplicity at the same time that doesn't mean that there's absolutely nothing for us to do here that we're just kind of lost and we're never going to move towards simplicity at all both Foster's some, uh, Freedom of Simplicity and Jan Johnson's Abundant Simplicity, they've got some really great practical teaching on this. So I encourage you to read those books if you can. For example, this is coming from Jan Johnson. First thing you could do, we start with ourselves. Wherever we are in our journey with simplicity, whether we've got it in boatloads or whether we are totally lacking it altogether, we start where we are. And we're not comparing ourselves to somebody else's way of life. Second, we don't overanalyze it. If we start to make our pathway to simplicity complex, we're probably not on the right pathway to simplicity. Third, we don't take ourselves too seriously. As we start to experiment with this, it's natural that we're going to begin to see our self-absorption and our overconcern with what Jan Johnson calls the three A's, achievement, Affluence and appearance. We have to get over ourselves and not get caught up on that. We don't become discouraged that we're not perfect. Our spirituality is not fundamentally about us. Our spirituality is fundamentally about what God is doing in us and through us. And then a last practical thing from her book, we make room for celebration and beauty. It's a mistake to think that simplicity is all about austerity. Yes, there is cutting back and there's saying no and there's doing without in different ways, but that's always in the service of a more beautiful yes. Practices of simplicity end up creating a life of much by choosing a life of less. I can't take credit for that. That was her. Practices of simplicity end up creating a life of much by choosing a life of less. Now, inward simplicity, simplicity of heart, is the foundation for all of the outward expressions of simplicity that that we might have, all the generosity that we might be able eventually to live with. But to take some initial steps in deepening our simplicity of heart, we might actually need some external reinforcements first. We might need to do some of those outward things to kind of give ourselves a jumpstart. It's not wrong. to to start with outward, visible practices and disciplines, as long as we remember that they are not an end in themselves. They are meant to put us in a place where we finally are able to seek first the kingdom of God so that everything else would be added to us, everything else would fall underneath it. So I want to extend two invitations to you. Both of them are into outward practices that can sort of jumpstart your inward simplicity. One of them is extremely easy. The other one is still pretty easy, though it might have an uphill climb every now and then. And so that second one is a spiritual discipline called margin. And you already know what margin is, even if you haven't done it yet. Margin is the blank space around the pages of your life. It is living in a way where you you are not written out to the very edges all the time. Margin means having buffer and breathing room. And because most of us are probably starting from a place that doesn't have much margin in it, it most likely means that we're going to have to say some no's at first, and that's where the uphill climb kind of comes in. We can build margin into our schedules not booking our entire day and leaving space between appointments so that we can breathe. We can build margin into our budgets, not getting that cup of coffee or that pair of jeans that we already did budget for, but we can enjoy the breathing room of not purchasing it. We can build margin into our attention, not filling every spare moment with music or news or podcasts or entertainment. So margin is actually the the discipline in this week's practice guide, which you can find uh, online on our Spiritual Formation Resource page on the website. Definitely check that out. The other invitation is incredibly simple, and it's great for growing simplicity. And really, if you do nothing else this week, this could be the most basic response to keep simplicity in front of you this week and to stay conscious of your desire for it or at the very least, your desire to desire it, if you're not there yet. And it's breath prayer. It's taking the space of a single breath, and without anybody else knowing it, silently to pray, seek first the kingdom of God. Any of us can do that. It's a prayer that reminds us of what is most important right in that moment. It's a prayer that shapes how you are going to respond to the people and the circumstances around you. And it's a prayer that asks God to give you a desire for his kingdom when that is not what you are desiring. When your love is split between a hundred other things or maybe even one other thing. You can pray it when you're facing a decision or a fork in the road. Seek first the kingdom of God. You can pray it when you run into temptation, maybe even especially when you hear that siren call of mammon. Seek first the kingdom of God. You can pray it when you've already given in to temptation, confessing it to God, trusting in his forgiveness through Jesus, expressing your desire never to go back there again. Seek first the kingdom of God. Friends, that's it. In some ways, I wish I had fireworks or a flourish here at the end to end with, but I mean, in some ways, that kind of seems inappropriate for a sermon about simplicity. So I'll simply say both to myself and to each one of you, seek first the kingdom of God and you will find simplicity of heart. We're going to close in prayer. And the prayer I'm going to pray is actually from, I've had so many books today. Uh, it's from another book. This is, it, it's a book of prayers um, called Gorillas of Grace by Ted Loader. Um, and this is a prayer that helps us, that gives us words to ask God for this simplicity, recognizing the obstacles that we face to it, both the obstacles inside and those that are out around us. So as we close, let's pray together. O Eternal One, it would be easier for me to pray if I were clear and of a single mind and a pure heart, if I could be done hiding from myself and from you even in my prayers. But I am who I am, Mixture of motives and excuses, blur of memories, quiver of hopes, knot of fear, tangle of confusion, and restless with love, for love. I wander somewhere between gratitude and grievance, wonder and routine, high resolve and undone dreams, generous impulses and unpaid bills. Come, find me, Lord. Lord. Be with me exactly as I am. Help me find me, Lord. Help me accept what I am so I can begin to be yours. Make of me something small enough to snuggle, young enough to question, simple enough to giggle, old enough to forget, foolish enough to act for peace, skeptical enough to doubt the sufficiency of anything but you, and attentive enough to listen as you call me out of the tomb of my timidity into the chancy glory of my possibilities and the power of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.